So let me remind you by way of introduction what Pastor Nate has been telling us for the last few weeks about the Psalms. There's a couple purposes that Nate has given to us. One, that they're written to give voice to the emotion of our soul. They're written to give voice to the emotion of our soul. And number two, that they're a buoy. They're a buoy to our soul by communicating truth about who God is and what God has done. It's what we hang on to when, all, when things are going so badly. Psalm 8 is heavy on that second one. <laughs> this is a buoy for your soul. But there's, there's more going on, and I hope that we'll see that throughout the psalm. So, let's zoom in on the structure of the psalm to help us better understand the psalmist's purpose. Uh, let me give you the two points of your outline, just two points. First point is the majesty of God, the majesty of God, and we're going to see that in verses 1 and verse 9. And the second point, about halfway down your paper, is human frailty or human weakness, and that would be the majority of the psalm, verses 2 through 8. So, let's observe these frame verses, 1 and 9. Let's observe the majesty of God. In our English Bibles, you'll get a sense of repetition when you read this phrase, O Lord, our Lord. But if you look closely, you'll notice that the first Lord is not the same as the second Lord. The first Lord is in all caps. In your Bible, the first Lord is in all caps. Now, the second Lord, only the first letter is capitalized. Well, did the author just forget to unclick caps lock as he wrote? No. The translators are letting us know that in Hebrew, what it's being translated from, this first term is the term Yahweh, or what we get the word Jehovah from. And the second term is a different term, it's Adonai. So we could translate this verse, O Yahweh, our Adonai. All right, what does this mean? I mean, why… Why have two different names in four words? What's the big deal? What's the significance? So, Yahweh is the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's the name associated with the covenant at Sinai given to the nation of Israel. Look at Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's His name, Yahweh. I am who I am. And the Lord said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent you. Yahweh is the name of God given to Israel so that when Israel is asked or when Israel asks, who is your God? The answer is to be Yahweh. Pastor Mike just prayed, said that God would be our God despite all the other little gods around us. In the same way, Israel's God is Yahweh. That is a, this is a significant term for Israel. All right, it's also the name that's proclaimed again to Moses in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. The Lord, Yahweh, descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, we're kind of saying, he already knows his name is Yahweh, (laughs) Why would you, now why would you say it again? What's the difference? Well, this passage is highly significant again for Israel because look at what the Lord says. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed 
Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The name revealed who God is, not just, not just a label for God. It reveals His very essence to the nation. This name is a covenantal reminder, and it is a self-revelation of God. What about the term Adonai? Well, Adonai brings to mind the role of God as owner and master of all. Now, I know those are trigger words in our day and age of hypersensitivity to anything oppressive, but look at the personal noun that it's coupled with. Right before the second Lord, that personal pronoun is our, O Lord, our Lord. The psalmist is invoking the name Adonai, and he acknowledges that Yahweh is Israel's God and that He is the owner and master. And this means that Israel is Yahweh's people. God is covenanted to His people. Not just out of duty, not just out of obligation, He has chosen to possess this people. So these names set the scene for us. The addressee, the one that this psalm is addressed to, is God, the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God of Israel. So the next phrase of verse 1 helps us understand there's a broader scope to this God. <clears throat> it says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So having spent time on the two names of God, which we just did, we might be forgiven for thinking that name here, how majestic is your name, means the literal alphabet, these, these letters put together to represent who God is. But that's not what the meaning is here. This phrase actually represents the reputation or the renown that Yahweh has. So, what is the reputation of Yahweh in all the earth? Look at verse 1. What is the reputation of Yahweh in all the earth? It's majestic. There's a kingliness or an impressiveness, an intimidating powerfulness to God. Majestic is a public display of God's power and authority. God's reputation in all the earth is jaw-dropping. It's awe-inspiring. Now, you may have noticed that verse 1 and verse 9, those first two lines are exactly the same. This is what Bible scholars call an inclusio. It, it's like parentheses. So, what this alerts us that there's a particularly important theme, all right? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's a particularly important theme, and everything that's between those two phrases will help us understand what those two phrases, what, these, what this phrase means. All right, so all the, the material in the middle is going to help us know what the end and the beginning is about. So the psalmist is going to give us an answer to how God displays His majesty in all the earth by using a double example contained within, within this inclusio. If you look down in your notes under number two, human frailty, you have four lines. 
So let me give you a grid to help us work through these two examples. These two examples follow the same pattern. The same four elements are, are both in both example one and example two. So number one is celestial pondering. Celestial pondering. And I'll, we'll explain, I'll explain these as we go along. But celestial pondering, this is just for your notes. Number two is weak and unimpressive creatures. Weak and un, unimpressive creatures. Number three is impressive opposition. And number four is God's majesty revealed. So as we work through these four components, we'll see how they're mirrored in example number one and example number two. So look at, look at uh, verse one, the end, the end of verse one, and it says that you have set your glory above the heavens. Yahweh has set his glory above the heavens. We're directed to the glory of Yahweh associated with celestial wonders. That's what the heavens are. The psalmist is saying God's glory is out there for everyone to see. It's billboarded across the skies. Everyone, everywhere can see it. And yet, it's above the heavens. It's beyond our ability to grasp. His glory is on display, but tell me, is that God? Because what we see is not actually God. We see the heavens, we see the celestial wonders, and as majestic as they are, as glorious as they are, they are not God. Whatever they may be in terms of awe-inspiring, the one who made them is more impressive, not by decimal places, but by all of eternity. His glory is above the, the heavens. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. Look down at verse number three, where the second example starts. And how's the second example start? When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. So, what verse 1b started, the writer now fleshes out in verse three. The writer says that Yahweh has set his glory above the heavens, and now the writer gives us a picture of the heavens that he's viewing and the awe that they create. Many commentators believe that David wrote the psalm. And that this is one of those times that we see David shepherding, and he's laying out in the field, staring up at the heavens at night. And what does he see? What does it create in him? So it's not difficult to be awed by the greatness and the vastness of the universe on a dark and cloudless night. Stars innumerable appear. The moon slowly crosses the expanse as if pulled by an invisible tether. And the closer you look, the more amazing it becomes because with a telescope, <clears throat> more stars are visible, more galaxies. The moon is not this tiny orb, but it's a large crater-filled satellite of Earth. The sheer size and expanse of the universe becomes itself mind-blowing. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I got to Google how big is the universe this, this week. And I found this nugget on the NASA website. You ready? Voyager 1, which is a satellite sent out by the U.S. in 1977, the year I was born, is 14.3 billion miles from Earth. Or it was on Friday, and it's traveling at 38,000 miles an hour. It will keep going on and on. NASA estimates that our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. 
100,000 light years across. Now, that seems huge, and it is, until we compare it with other galaxies. Our neighboring galaxy, Andromeda, for example, is 220,000 light years wide. Another galaxy, IC 1101, spans as much as 4 million light years. Just in case you're wondering what a light year is, the distance light travels in one year. Light zips along through interstellar space at 186,000 miles per second. So in one year, light travels 5.8 trillion miles. And there's a galaxy that is 4 million miles, 4 million light years to get across. The Earth is eight light minutes from the sun, a trip at light speed to the very edge of our solar system would take 1.87 years going at light speed. To get to a, the next uh, neighboring star, Proxima Centauri, you'd, you would plan on arriving in 4.25 years at light speed. That's if you could travel at light speed, but you can't. <laughs> now, all those numbers are just like, how do you even categorize this? And it doesn't end. Just because we can't see it, it doesn't end. So it's not hard to be awed by the universe. And if you're not awed by the universe, take your pulse. Now, the psalmist considers the celestial magnificence, but don't miss, it, don't miss his intentional language. Whose heavens are these? Whose fingers are these things the work of? And who set them in place? The answer is Yahweh. The greatness of the creation highlights the superiority of the Creator. This God, Yahweh, displays His magnificence in a way that is both readily observable and completely incomprehensible, and that is what the psalmist gets when he ponders the heavens. But now he's going to turn to something else. This is where the psalmist loses us for just a brief moment, because look at verse number 2. After pondering the heavens, from the lips of babies and infants, you, Yahweh, have established strength. Now, sometimes it helps when you're reading Scripture to think, you read a part, and then you say, what do I expect next? So what I'm expecting after this pondering of the heavens, what I'm expecting is more heavenly language. I'm expecting a riff on God's creative work throughout the universe or the incomprehensible nature and attributes of Yahweh, but instead, but instead, I get crumb crunchers and rug rats and drooling and diapered, incoherent babblers. What just happened? <laughs> the psalmist is pivoting, pivoting intentionally from the clear and evident strength of the glorious Yahweh to contrast with the weakness and the powerlessness of these infants. Look down at verse number four, the second example. The pivot brings us to weak and unimpressive creatures. Who are the weak and unimpressive creatures in verse four? They're humans. The psalmist asks what any thoughtful individual would ask after ponderings in the heavens and the greatness and the superiority of the Creator. What is man? What is man? that you're mindful of Him, and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Okay, these man and Son of Man are just synonymous terms, and they just, they speak of all of humanity. What is humanity that you're mindful of them? And 
all of mankind that you would care for, for them. The wording mindful of and care for in verse 4 is purposeful, though. A, a better or a sharper translation of the phrase mindful of is to remember. It's not though, as though, though, God forgot human beings, and now He just, oh, I remember them. No, this remember is from, from the wording of passages like Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Or Exodus 2.24, God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And He's going to send Moses to effect the exodus. So this remembering is not just bringing to mind. In these two examples, it's God bringing to mind what He has told these people, what He has covenanted, covenanted with them, what He has promised them, and it causes Him to act. In fact, we see this in Psalm 105 on the opposite end. The psalmist says, seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. You people remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and judgments He's uttered. The second… Verse 5, remember the wondrous works. You're supposed to call to mind what God has done for you, and then it's, it's supposed to cause you to act in a way to seek the Lord, to seek His presence. So, remember is to intentionally bring to mind a person or a situation or a covenant to spur us into action. So, when brought to mind, when God remembers mankind, what is God's action toward the weak and unimpressive human race. Well, the second part of that was that God, Yahweh, cares for my, mankind. What is man that you would care for him? The idea here is that Yahweh takes note of and He acts in compassion toward mankind. We see this example in Ruth 1.6. So, uh, Naomi decided to return home from the region of Moab, accompanied by her daughters-in-law, because while she was living in Moab, she had heard that the Lord had shown concern or had compassion on His people. He cared for His people, reversing the famine by providing abundant crops. We have the same word in Ruth 1.6, where God shows concern by reversing the famine. Psalm 106, verse 4 the psalmist says, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Pay attention to me or care for me when you deliver. So, the plea is that God would pay attention to the psalmist and act on his behalf in care and in compassion, in this case, to deliver. Mankind, altogether, is a pathetic creature. When we compare ourselves to the celestial wonders, we should be overlooked and forgotten, and instead God cares for, He remembers us. The third part of the grid, though, is impressive opposition. So, back to verse number two, notice that the psalmist pits these babies and infants against God's, and he uses these words, foes, the enemy, and the avenger in verse two. Babies and infants against foes, enemies, and avengers. So, here then is the impressive opposition. It's not going to be a fair fight. 
drooling baby, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, drooling baby. Go for it. <laughs> it's not going to be a fair fight. Now, look at the second example, because this is a little different when we look at the impressive opposition. Look down at verses 7 and 8. What do we have in 7 and 8? We have sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heaven and fish of the sea and anything else in the seas. Now, we might be tempted to think, this, is, this opposition isn't so tough. Sheep? No problem. Oxen? Oh, yeah, okay, it's a little harder. They're a little bit bigger, but I can manage them. But what about all the rest of the beasts of the field? So, first of all, there's the matter of just getting a hold of them. I mean, have you tried to catch a rabbit or a squirrel or a chipmunk or a deer? So, they're difficult to corral, let alone subdue, but those are the little ones. Those are the nice ones. How about badgers and wolves and elephants and lions and grizzly bears? I'm going to take a pass on taming the wolverine, personally. Now, these are the land animals. Just so you know, these are just the land animals. So, to add a degree of difficulty, the, the psalmist next mentions birds, the ones that are flying over our heads that we can't even reach. But even those, if we could chase them through the air to somehow wrangle them to the earth, at least we're still breathing oxygen while we do it. Because there's another degree of difficulty with the creatures the psalmist mentions next when you enter the sea and try to catch and conquer the fish from Nemo to the great white. And then just in case you're feeling all Aquamanish on me, after conquering those, you can deal with the rest of the sea dwellers, eels and jellyfish and octopi and giant squid, and frankly, <clears throat> whatever else is lurking down there in the dark with tentacles and suction cups and pincers and teeth. There's a reason, there's a reason that the Discovery Channel runs a whole week called Shark Week, because compared to sharks, humans are rather pathetic. <laughs> sharks are impressive. <laughs> so, how will contemplating the weak and unimpressive humans versus the deadly and formidable foes of God and His creation, how will that impress upon us His reputation is majestic in all the earth? That's what the psalmist is driving at. So, the fourth piece of the grid here is God's majesty is revealed. Look again at the first and second line of verse number two. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength, or you have established a stronghold. So, let me back up a minute and help us again with perspective on what the psalmist is saying here. Have you ever spent time with an eight to eight-month to a 16-month-old baby, that babbling, pre-intelligible stage of communication. The psalmist is saying that what comes out of those children's mouths, God uses to establish a stronghold. If you spent time around little ones, you probably have a whole bunch of examples of nonsense coming from tiny little human beings. And one of my favorite memories <laughs> is uh, from our kids. One day at breakfast, uh, we're eating breakfast, and I don't even know what led up to the conversation, frankly, but one of them looked at me, I think he even grabbed my arm, and he said, I smell you like pancake. 
I, I, to this day, I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what was going through his head. But I can tell you what it didn't do. Out of the mouth of this infant and babe, it did not make me contemplate the glory of God. <laughs> it did not create a stronghold for me in that moment. But that's what God says. That's what the psalmist says. Out of the mouths of baby, babies and infants, God creates a stronghold. What's the psalmist's point? So, in the last half of verse 1 through verse 2, the writer is saying, God's incomparable and incomprehensible glory that's shown in the heavens is shown in using the weak and unimpressive to accomplish His will in this world. The foes are vastly more impressive than, and deadly than babies and infants, but out of their incoherence, out of their very weakness, as defined by the psalmist, God forms a stronghold and it quiets, it defeats the enemy. So, look at the second example. These weak and unimpressive humans. Verse number five, what does God do with these humans? In the face of such impressive opposition, God gives glory and honor and dominion over the works of your hands. Yahweh, you have put all things under humanity's feet. These weak and unimpressive humans are the ones to whom God gives glory. The ESV uses the phrase, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, but if you have a Bible, a study Bible or a translator's footnote, you'll see that there's an alternate translation, and I find this, in this context, very compelling. The term, the Hebrew term there for heavenly beings is actually the term Elohim. And you may recognize that because it's the term used for God in many Old Testament scriptures. The psalmist is saying, you, Yahweh, have made mankind a little lower than God and crowned humans with glory and honor. This part of the psalm echoes the creation account of Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, when God created mankind, God intended and equipped humanity to have dominion over all things. That was His intent. That is what He made man to do. And that's not what we're doing. So, what went wrong? Well, sin, and sin brought death. Genesis 3, the choice of Adam to decide for himself what is right and wrong. Even if we humans could somehow find a way to actually subdue and have dominion over all of creation, we would still be left with an enemy that's more impressive than any of us, which is sin and death. But God has chosen mankind and positioned us to have dominion. And we have no chance of doing this in any meaningful way by ourselves. But Yahweh's glory, His majesty is displayed by accomplishing His will through humanity in creation. He has made mankind, given humans dignity and authority over all His creation. But then, but then who gets the glory 
Who establishes the stronghold? And who sets man up to rule and crowns man with glory and honor? The glory doesn't go to the babies and the infants. It doesn't go to the humans. The avenger, the enemy, they're more impressive. But the one who gets glory is God because He establishes the stronghold. Doesn't God have angelic armies? Doesn't God use nature and storms and earthquakes and floods and fire and brimstone and opening up the earth to swallow people? Doesn't God employ military strategy and weaponry to defeat His enemies? But the psalmist understands well that the master musician gets glory, not the instrument. In fact, the poorer the instrument, the greater the glory of the musician. And it's the same with God. The weakness and unimpressive nature of the children and of humans exponentially boosts the glory God receives in using them to accomplish His will. When we observe God's special place for humanity and creation, we are awed not by our greatness, but by His grace. His power is shown in our weakness. Who but Yahweh, our Adonai, could accomplish such an unexpected result when you realize all of the limitations that you have? This leads to our big idea. I asked at the beginning, how does God accomplish this end? How does God make His name majestic in all the earth? What display of power, what act of renown, what feat of strength proclaims God's reputation as awe-inspiring throughout the world? Well, God's majesty is shown by using the weak and unimpressive to accomplish His will in this world. So, to wrap up, let's make two connections. The first is the connection to David in the Psalms, especially Psalms 3 through 7 here. In the context of the Psalms that precede Psalm 8, Pastor Nate has been preaching through, uh, recently through 4 through 7, but we'll include Psalm 3 also. David, David sees himself as weak and unimpressive, but God exalts him to accomplish Yahweh's will in the world. Psalm 3, 1, O Lord, how many are my foes, David calls out. Psalm 5-2, give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for, you, for to you do I pray. Psalm 6-10, all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Last week, Pastor Nate helpfully titled Psalm 7, God is judge, it's going to be okay. David realized his weakness and committed himself to God as the judge. And now Psalm 8 rises from Psalms 3 through 7 to solidify this motif. God's majesty is displayed by using the weak and unimpressive David to accomplish his will. God chooses to work through the insignificant person to defeat his enemies. God heaps glory and honor on the weak and the unimpressive. David feels that way when compared to the impressive opposition he faces, but this psalm is like a buoy to the oppressed and battered David that we see in Psalms 3 through 7 because God will use the weak and unimpressive to accomplish His will in this world. We need to make one more connection, though, because David is not just a lamenting poet. 
David is a king. He's the king from whom will come the king of kings. And this one, the Messiah, the anointed one, how will God display his majesty through the Messiah? What display, what display of power, what act of renown, what feat of strength proclaims God's reputation through the Messiah as awe-inspiring to the world? Well, Hebrews 2, 6 quotes our passage here. It was testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you cared for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. How did he become crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What was the awe-inspiring work of God through Jesus? It was Jesus' incarnation, his taking on humanity, and his death. God's majesty is displayed in a weak and unimpressive Messiah, a Messiah who would come as a baby, who would suffer and bleed, be wounded and striped, would be called a man of sorrow and associated with grief, and humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. A Messiah who dies? What enemy could that Messiah ever defeat? What stronghold could that Messiah ever offer? 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. This weak and unimpressive Messiah, the one who died, is actually conquering by dying, and he himself defeats death. He does it to accomplish our resurrection, but that's not the ultimate goal. Goal, even in the passage from 1 Corinthians, let's keep reading. 1527, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that He, that God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son, Jesus, the Messiah Himself, will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that here's the purpose, that God may be all in all. When all things are finally and fully subjected to Christ, Christ will Himself be subjected or turn and subject Himself to the Father. For what purpose? That God may be all in all. That the majesty of God will be fully displayed for everyone to see for all time. 
And then we will finally and fully appreciate the plan of God to display His majesty through the weak and the unimpressive. Let me give you three applications in closing here. Number one, some of you have not run to Christ. Now, there are a thousand objections that we have to accepting Christ as Savior, but they boil down to this. We don't believe ourselves to truly be weak and unimpressive. We believe we're pretty good. We believe we can save ourselves. But as sure as I stand before you today, you will stand before God one day. And in that moment, you will realize how weak and unimpressive you really are and how majestic He really is. And your only hope is the hope that David has in Psalm 8, is the hope that we have in the weak and unimpressive Messiah who died a willing sacrifice for sin but was raised with glory and honor. Will you accept Him? He will not turn you away. Number two, rejoice in your weakness because it reveals the majesty of God working through you. I wish I was a better preacher. (laughs) But God can use my weakness for His glory. You may wish you were a better witness. But guess what? God uses your witness for His glory. You may wish you were a better father or mother or husband or wife or child. You You can wish all you want for the things that you feel like you aren't. But God uses you He uses your weakness to give Himself glory. So, when we acknowledge that we're weak and unimpressive, we are ready for God to work through us. Humility precedes usability. Number three, it is appropriate and necessary for us to contemplate the majesty of God. Doing so helps to recalibrate recalibrate our estimation of ourselves. It drives our worship of Him, and it fuels our dependence on Him. The God who created all we see, but He is not part of it, that God is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise now and forevermore. Let's pray.